Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Whether you work for government or industry, we're here to help you understand just a little more about how the other side thinks. This episode is brought to you by Skyway Acquisition. Skyway's team of former contracting officers and industry pros will help make you more prepared, more competitive, and more effective in the government market. Visit skywaymember.com to learn more. This is an encore presentation of our conversation about the decision makers in the government world. Let's get started with the three deciders. You know, buying in the government market is it's different than than the real world. And a lot of people don't understand who who really makes the decision in the government market. Yeah, and I get the question a lot. People say, you know, who's the real decider here? And and of course, a typical contracting officer answer is it, it depends. Sometimes it's the contracting officer and alone, right? Sometimes it's somebody with a government credit card alone. Um, sometimes it's just a person with the need with the inf- who's influencing the contracting officer. But usually it's a combination of three main people, three main deciders. And so it's what we call the, the three deciders. The and three so, deciders. <laughs> it's an unofficial name that uh, really kind of helps you understand who all the players that matter here, what group are they in. So it's three decider groups. How's that? That's that's good. Before we get into that, let's say thanks. Yeah, we want to say thanks to Bethany Burton. Uh, she's a community member and also a proposal management professional slash contracts manager slash person that wears lots of hats for her company. And part of her review says, having information from a contracting officer's perspective has transformed the way I do my job. That's Boom. Awesome. Yeah. Five star review. Thank you for that. That's a great way of that. That's exactly what we're what we're going for here. Making Sweet. government contracts better, one contract at a time. Exactly. So, what are we talking about today? We're talking about the three deciders. Let's talk about how you buy stuff in your personal life, or even in a very small company. And I'll, I'll set this up. So, imagine a triangle. On one side is the money. On another side is the need, and on the third side is the ability to actually make a purchase. So let's talk about my need this morning. So I'm a little thirsty. That's the need. I'm in need of liquid refreshment. I have money, enough to buy many types of liquid refreshment. And I have a credit card or I have cash, which is the ability to make the purchase. So now I have to make a decision. What kind of liquid refreshment do I want? Do I want a soft drink? Do I want a cup of coffee? Do I want a fancy drink? All those require different amounts of money. If I only have $2, I'm not going to get a latte from Starbucks. (laughs) So I may have to reduce my requirements for liquid refreshment down to coffee. Just a cup of coffee. Good old Joe. But I'm also the one that gets to use the credit card or dole out the cash for it. And that works even for bigger decisions. Like if you're buying a car, I have the money. I have needs that I can flex depending on how much money I want to spend, and I'm the one that's going to sign the deal to buy the car. I'm all three of those people. As you grow, as if you move this example to a small business, you may still be all three people. If you're a a micro business, you may control the budget, have the needs, and make the purchase. Like when Skyway started, when it was just you, Kevin, you could do whatever you wanted. Yeah, back when it was me with a dream, I just was all three of these. And, and as we've grown, 
now we have the economic decider is is me as a president of the company, but then there's the customer. Like we use the example of when we bought Box, which is our our, our platform to uh, collaborate and share files and stuff. The customer is our team, our, our Skyway team members, as well as our customers, their actual members. I, I want some input on how, what's the best solution. And they were the researchers. They figured out the solution. And then the transactor was one of our team members that had the, the company credit card to set up the, you know, the, the annual payment to make that work. So we're kind of in the, the middle zone where there's, there are times when there are three different people. So then imagine that scaled to a large company. Say, say you're a big company. You need a brand new HR system. So that's a lot of money and a big decision for your organization. So it might be above the budget of just the HR department to decide. So the economic decider may be the CEO. The customer is the HR department that has to use it to use the tool. And in this case, it would affect the whole company. So the economic decider, I mean, even though it's an HR tool, every employee is going to be impacted by it. So you want the decision made higher up organizationally. Right, right. Because if HR buys a tool that's just great for the HR people, <laughs> that but, never happens. but the interface for the employees sucks, right? <laughs> so yeah, you might need... To, to have that decision in a different spot. But the person that actually buys, that pays the vendor for that HR system is probably not the CEO or the head of HR, right? There's a purchasing department that, that does that kind of thing. Now scale that to the ultimate bureaucracy, to the government. And this is where we can really talk about who are the three deciders because I think it's easier to, to define. There's three sides of that triangle. There's money, there's a requirement, and there's a person that can actually – buy the thing, make the transaction. In the government, those things are much more clear than they are in private industry in in most cases. Unless you're a government contractor, in which case you may have just as many lines drawn around who does what as the government does. And in the government market, they're codified. Yeah, that's it's a good a way to say it. This, this is how it shall work. Whereas in a company, you may be figuring out as you go. So the money side, the economic decider is what we're calling this side of the, the triangle. Who's on that side, Kevin? On the economic decider side, you have Congress, uh, maybe an acquisition executive, a program executive officer, a program manager. I mean, all of these different people have a budget of some sort. In, you know, in Congress's case, they're actually allocating the money. But that's the economic decider that says, OK, we're going to spend whether it's $50 billion on this next big system or it's $100,000 on you know, IT services. Somebody's got the, the authority to make that economic decision on the government market. So for the vast majority of government acquisitions, this is going to be the program manager. So the program manager is in charge of actually bringing this whole thing together. But bringing what whole thing together? Well, that's the requirement side. And the requirement is in the government world, we often call it the user or, I mean, it's the customer. This is the soldiers or the sailors that have a need for something. We always talk about DOD stuff. may not be just soldiers or sailors. There's lots of government agencies that don't have any soldiers or sailors with needs. It's not the point. point is, somebody has a requirement. They have a need. They're the ones that are going to, whatever it is, is going to be delivered to them to use. Yeah, they're the ones who want you to award the contract. Because at the end of the contract, they get something. Right. That's why you're doing this whole thing. They're the ones you're actually serving with the whole contract process. But neither one of these deciders, the economic decider or the user, customer, they can't actually make the purchase in the government world because only a contracting officer has the power of the pen. And in most cases for small acquisitions, the contracting officer is really the, de the decider. The, the, there's, other, there, there's a requirement and there's money, 
but those people aren't really involved in the the I'll say simple type of buying activities. The the CEO has much more power and, and responsibility to actually award a contract to somebody who can do the work. And, right. and so the, the user may have the ability with a government credit card and a micro purchase, but if you're above the micro purchase threshold, the contracting officer is involved in some way. And so now you have all three of these people. You have the person with the money, the person with the need, and the person that can actually make the transaction happen. Now you have to have all three of them, and they're codified. And one of the things to point out here is that, speaking of being codified, the contracting officer cannot work for the other two. That's why contracts has its own, like, its own stovepiped organization on the organization chart. Because you, you think about that. As a taxpayer, you don't want the user to be able to say, hey, go buy this. And they're, the contracting officer's appraisal is tied to whether or not they do that. Yeah, you're yeah. not going to get a raise unless you do this illegal stuff. Right? You don't want that to be able to happen, right? Contracts people are they're kept separate for, through a separate reporting chain so that they can stand up for all the rules and the compliance stuff that probably the users hate, but that's how our government works, right? Somebody's got to keep an eye on that, and if they can be influenced to break the rules for personal gain, that's bad. So generally, contracts people are kept in a separate chain and can always say no without any ramifications to their career. And by say no, I mean say no to breaking the law, not say no to actually getting stuff done and getting progress done. Let me talk about how this fits in the acquisition time zones. This actually covers, spreads itself throughout all of the acquisition time zones. This isn't an execution time zone thing. We're talking about deciding what to buy. We'll get into specifics about the time zones later. Let's talk about why this is important. Why are the three deciders important? The economic decider is important because they're the one that actually holds the purse strings. They, you can't move, you can't buy things, you can't move the needle for an organization if you don't have money to do so, right? So in general terms, the economic decider, they, they control the obligations, they, they're concerned about exp, um, expenditure rates, they're concerned about colors of money, they have, they're, they're the one who decides we're going to do this. And they're usually at the top of the pyramid. <laughs> the organization is kind of how to think about yeah, it. Yeah, let me clarify. The government has specific rules about because we have colors of money, which is a separate podcast, your money's only good for a certain period of time. So the government has rules about how fast you have to obligate that money and how fast you have to actually expend it. And if you're on the government side and you don't get an acquisition moving and obligate that money, and if the contractors don't spend it fast enough, the economic deciders may pull it back and use that money for other things that they're allowed to use it for. So it's a different world, but there there is someone that cares about the money and how fast it goes out the door because in the government world, money expires. It has it, it has an expiration date. All right, sorry. Yeah. Side thing. Move on. It's a very good point. That's one of the things the economic decider cares about is, is, is whether or not the money is getting used. So what does the customer care about? Well, customer wants their stuff, like yesterday. I mean, they, they either want the service that, they're, that the contract is expiring and they need to be renewed or this is something they've, they've never gotten before and they want to make sure they get it. They care about the mission. That's what they care about. They care about getting the work done. Right. Um, if you have a building and and part of it's falling down, you want it fixed now. You don't want to wait on the acquisition process to decide who's going to fix the building. Yeah, exactly. They're, they have they have their own <laughs> they have their own focus, which is get me what I need. And then the transactor, what do they care about? Well, they care about the acquisition strategy. They care about the review thresholds. Who's actually going to be looking over my shoulder? Can, do I have to compete this with whom? Can I do a direct award, the source selection process? Do I use GSA, et cetera, et cetera? A lot of moving parts in there, but that's what they care about is I need to be able to buy this because I'm trying to take the money from somebody who gave it to me to buy something for the somebody who needs it. 
So that transactor is sitting between the two of them, hence the triangle. Let's talk about the specific reasons why the government should care about this. First, government folks don't assume that industry understands who has the power to decide. Yeah, that, that was a great example of the things that I didn't know that I didn't know. <laughs> I thought people knew this stuff. Yeah, the big companies definitely do. Don't tell me that Boeing doesn't understand who does what when in the government side. But as a small company entering the government market, you may be interfacing with one person who has absolutely no power to impact whether or not you get a contract. You have to know who has that power. And all three deciders are involved in the acquisition process. But consider how much each one is involved at different periods throughout the process. So let's get back to the time zones with this. Who has a lead in each acquisition time zone? So if you're in the requirement zone, the economic decider and the customer have the lead because they sort of have to match up. The customer may have a billion dollars worth of ideas that they want. I need all this stuff. But if the budget is $50,000, there's a mismatch. So those folks have to get the amount of money they have and the needs sort of aligned in the requirement zone. In the market research zone, we move on to where it's really the customer who's who's looking out for their needs and the contracting officer that's sort of running the market research. More in the lead, the economic decider is a little bit in the background at that phase. When you get to the RFP, we try to keep the, keep things a little more controlled. The customer is still definitely involved in that process. Then when you get to the source selection, all three may be involved. In the, Like you said before, in most government acquisitions, the CO is going to make that decision. But as the acquisition gets bigger, you get more customer involvement and you get more economic decider involvement. If the, if the economic decider is that acquisition executive, they may be actually – they may be the source selection authority. So what I'm saying is you have all three deciders involved the whole process, but which one is the most in deciding mode changes throughout the time zones. And an example of this is that sometimes you get protests and procurement integrity act violations and frustrations because people assumed that something was a done deal because they, they talked to the economic decider and they talked to the, the customer. And then until it got to the contracting officer and the contracting officer said, oh, I, I can't award that contract for, you know, for X reason. And the customer, the customer may want something and they go to the contracting officer and say, hey, let's get this. And there isn't enough money, which, again, that's not the contracting officer's decision. That's the economic decider's decision. So all three of these have to be involved. To avoid surprises. So why does this matter to industry? Why should industry care here? Because the degree to which each decider matters is dependent on a lot of things. It's the uniqueness of the requirement. Is this something that we buy all the time or is this something we've never bought before? The size of the requirement. Is this a billion dollar buy? Is this a $500 buy? That matters. The, the size of the agency Things are done differently in the small agencies than they are in the mega agencies like like DOD, for instance. And the funding availability, you know, how much funding is there? Wh when is it expiring? I mean, all of those things are going to change who, who has who has the con on when this is going to. Yeah, if done. it's a long, long term requirement, you might have a lot of money this year, not a lot of money next year. And in the third year, have a lot of money again. You need to understand that the industry industry folks need to understand those kind of things. And, and a key one is the experience of the government team their experience being able to communicate to in, to industry which one of the deciders has the role and it, it it can it can be very frustrating from the government side if if industry doesn't understand well i i had the con right now and they don't know that 
So make sure that they understand where you are in the process, which is why the time zones make so much sense. So linking this back to the time zones again from the industry side, in the requirement zone, this is where the economic decider and the customer are figuring out what they need. If you're talking to the contracting officer, the contracting officer may not even know that a requirement is really coming down the pike yet. They're worried about the stuff they're buying today. They're not worried about the stuff that's going to happen six months or a year from now. And if you in industry are trying to bend the contracting officer's ear about this, it might go in that ear and, and out the other. When you move on to the market research zone, when there is a requirement and now you're exploring the market, how the market can satisfy that requirement, now we've moved on to where the customer and the CEO are doing this research. If you're talking to the economic decider, they may be out of it. The budget may already be fixed. This is an example of the 80-20 rule is that understanding that the economic decider has approved the purchase of some thing, right? And you sell that thing. When the RFI comes out, the request for information about should this be a small business set aside, et cetera, et cetera. If you're still talking to the economic decider, in their mind, they're like, I, I don't care whether it's a small business set aside. I approve them to go buy it. Stop emailing me right. about That's whether- That's somebody else's job. Exactly. You're distracting them. When we get to the RFP zone, this is where, like I was talking about before, the contracting officers and the customers, they're the ones involved. And in the source selection, well, you can still try to influence, but what's written in the proposal and what was in the source selection plan, how they're going to evaluate things is really taking a lot of power right now. It's not so much the people. That's where the process is involved. Yeah, and, and that's a good point here is that, that from an industry perspective, you're really only going to be in, directly involved interacting during those first three. They're in the requirement zone, the market research, and the RFP zone. By the source selection zone, it, you have... <laughs> you're, you're, you have you're, a hard time hey, getting an audience with anyone involved with the source selection, right? That, yep. if, if you're trying to influence them now, you might be too late. Yeah. And so understand who the decider is at, at each point is important. But on top of that, this is risky is if you're targeting who you think it is. And so the example I just gave about talking to the economic decider when they're no longer really involved in this part of the process. The only thing worse than not knowing who the decider is is talking to someone who you think it is when it's not really them. Right, because you're wasting your time and theirs. So here's why all three players are important. If you have the economic decider and you have the user, you have the money to go buy something, you have a need for it, but you don't have a contract. You have no way to get it from industry. If you have an economic decider and you have a contracting officer, you've got money and a really great acquisition strategy to buy the wrong thing. And then if you have the user and the contracting officer, you have a really awesome requirement, a really great acquisition plan, but no money to buy anything. So you got to have all three of them. Otherwise, you're all just kind of <laughs> no money to buy anything. That never happens in the government world. <laughs> exactly. How many IDIQs are out there with, with a $500 million ceiling, but really no funding? And that's, then that's a great example of what happens when you only have two out of three. So make sure from an industry perspective, I'll throw this in there, make sure that all three are involved because that's a great example of you You just want a seat on an IDIQ contract that the economic decider doesn't care about. <laughs> that's where you have that big party that you you want a $500 million contract that you're only going to get $5,000 on ever. <laughs> and you spent you know, 100 grand winning it. <laughs> all right, that's a good place to wrap this up, Kevin. So my wrap-up points are which zone are we in and who cares the most during this zone? Which decider has the most influence at which point in the process? And, and don't ever assume one of the three is out of the discussion. 
even if they're in there in a small part. So the economic decider isn't really boots on the ground during the source selection zone. But at the end, if they're the economic decider, they absolutely are. Yeah, if the money goes away. <laughs> yeah, if they decide, you know what, we're not going to fund this, we're going to cancel it, which they're the one that would decide to do that. So make sure you, you understand that they're involved in each piece. And they may, be, they may be less active at certain points, but they're still there. Yeah. And I'll just wrap it up by saying government acquisition is different from the way that you buy things for yourself, where you're all three deciders. It's different from the way that a small company could operate, where a single a, – that solo entrepreneur may be all three people. It may be different from the way – that non-government companies operate who don't have to follow all the rules that government contractors have to follow. And what you need to remember is if you treat it the same as the way you buy things yourself, you're going to be disappointed in your success in the government acquisition world. We've mentioned the Skyway community a few times in this episode. And so if you're listening and you're curious about the Skyway community in general, go to skywaymember.com or just email me at kevin at skywayacquisition.com we can chat about it. And with that, thanks a lot, Kevin. I'll talk to you later. See you, Paul. Okay, that's it for this episode. And we really appreciate your feedback. Send your questions, comments, or complaints to me at paul at contractingofficerpodcast.com. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.